Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod. Episode one. Yes, it's episode one. This is our response to the, basically to the woes and hardships and, and doom scrolling that is the modern world. The Escape Pod is about getting away from all of that. In this little podcast, we're just going to try and get you to a different place, uh, even if you can't actually travel or get out of the house. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Anna Deming, New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm going to talk about some of the physics behind ballet and gymnastics. And I'm Timothy Revel, and I'm New Scientist's Culture and Comment Editor. And I'm going to be talking about one of my favourite board games. Well, I'm going to kick us off with a story about a whale, because, you know, who doesn't love dolphins and whales? Let's have a soundtrack, please, magical Ollie producer. Our starting point is the Farallon Islands. Uh, They're off the coast of Northern California. A few years ago, there was an incident there where a whale got tangled up in some crab lines used by some of the, the suppliers to the seafood industry of San Francisco. And uh, a big 15-metre female humpback whale got tangled up in these crab lines and she couldn't surface properly because the weight of the crab pots was making it hard for her to get her blowhole over the water. So, you know, she'd been struggling and the the ropes were cutting into the... Oh, gosh, Rowan, I thought this was supposed to be a skate podcast. Sounds traumatic. (laughs) Yeah, come on. (laughs) Oh, no, okay, it's getting there. I'm just building up. Uh, so some scuba divers, some rescue divers went in to get her and they spent five hours cutting the ropes. And uh, one of the uh, divers was called James Mosquito. And uh, he reported afterwards what happened. He says, when I was cutting the line going through the mouth, the whale's eye was there winking at me, watching me. And he said, it was an epic moment of my life. And the team said that there's, there was this weird vibration coming from the whale as she watched them cutting her free. And then when she was freed, this is the thing, she didn't just swim away, she she swam around in circles and then she approached each member of the rescue team and gently nuzzled them with her head. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Mosquito said, it felt to me like it was thanking us, knowing it was free and that we'd helped it. So I, you know, I've just never forgotten that account. Oh, it just sounds got, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I've just got this vivid image of a of a diver working by the giant eye of a whale and the the eye watching him as he's doing it it turns out humpbacks are sometimes more friendly than other species of whales either of you had any sort of weird encounters like that with a 
I don't know, a, n- not necessarily a marine animal, but, um, a, a, you know, an ape of, or anything like that? The thing I remember is, do you remember we had this story of, of, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, about how horses can remember whether you were smiling or frowning the last time that you saw them? Uh-huh. And I, ju- I just love this so much. And it like, whenever I see a horse now, I always remember to smile because you know they're going to remember next time you see them, yeah. um, what you were doing when you see them. Yeah, always smile at a horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's another story that um, stuck in my head. It's because it's difficult to work with. In, as a scientist, it's difficult to work with whales and dolphins on anything really, you know, tricky like consciousness because you know they're stuck in the water. But there was this there was this experiment where scientists gave dolphins a puzzle to solve and recorded the audio of what was happening. And it turns out that when the dolphins worked together to solve the puzzle, they made more whistles and clicks and more vocalizations than they did when they were just on their own. So they were chatting about it. Yeah. They were they were effectively chatting and and perhaps you know exploring ways to solve the puzzle. Um, and look, I I get there's so much amazing stuff about dolphins and whales, but there's another thing. There's a population of dolphins in Brazil that work with people to catch fish. Um, so the fisher people stand waist deep in the water, but the water's really muddy, uh, and the people you can't they can't see into it. But because dolphins have sonar, they can see into the water. So when the fish come along. The dolphins herd the fish together and then signal to the people. The dolphins slap the water with their tail or else sort of suddenly dive down. And that's the signal to cast the net. And these dolphins have different, a different kind of dialect, different whistles to those that don't do it. So there's, a, there's some kind of dialect among the dolphins that work with these people. Yeah, the dolphins give each other some sorts of names, don't they? Yeah, they, they have signature whistles that are distinct to particular dolphins. So they might go... Uh, and, <laughs> I don't um, know you spoke dolphin. Well, that's a, yeah, that was dolphin. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so what some researchers can do is you can play the signature whistle through a hydrophone, and then the dolphins whistle back. So you might do that, and then the the dolphin and that might be saying, "Hey, is is Tim over there?" And then the same whistle comes back from Tim, and uh, which basically means, "Yeah, I'm over here." And and then they might add whistles after that, which might add historical context to that name so it might be yeah it's tim who i'm the one who caught that fantastic octopus the other day remember <laughs> oh wow reputation names <laughs> uh yeah exactly it might be reputation status social status you know all of this is just to say you know there's a there's a scale of consciousness and a spectrum of abilities of theory of mind and self-awareness and and there's not this sharp divide between humans and, and other animals Now, Anna, let's uh, bring us back to dry land. What's your means of escape this week? Now, I, I thought we could talk about ballet and gymnastics. I confess, actually, I have more than a passing interest in ballet. It's probably one of the few obsessions that compete with my interest in physics and science. Well, actually, they, they don't compete at all. People, when they see ballet dancers doing all these uh, impossible-looking things with their bodies... People like to say they're defying physics, but they're yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> you yeah. know, and if, when you really think about it and you look at it, it's more like a, a really exquisite demonstration of some of the really fundamental basic principles of physics and Newtonian mechanics and momentum conservation and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, nothing nothing defies the laws of physics, but I guess in in headline writing, it's 
it's a kind of law to say gravity defying basketball <laughs> yeah. player or, or ballerina because <laughs> they do seem to hang in the air don't they Yes, they do. And there's little tricks, like the way you open your legs a little bit more as you're coming down, so it looks like you're not actually coming down and things like that. So tell us about the balancing and the training and how it, how it works when they when a ballerina will start to uh, twirl, or that's not the technical word for it, is it? Yeah, sure. I mean, all that teetering around on the tiptoes, I guess, is what, uh, what looks most obviously balletic to a lot of people. And obviously, if you just launch yourself onto a pair of point shoes without any training it would hurt like hell because you'd be it, no offense intended but it'd be like a dead weight just flopping around all over the place and <laughs> yeah. have all these talks and awkward pressure points and stuff so all the training gets all the muscles tuned so that they can align and control your center of mass along the line of stronger support to your big toe <laughs> and so then you've got all your twitch muscles to hold you in balance so it looks like you're just floating and then it gets easier when you start turning obviously Right. So how how is that? Well, it's the, they call it the gyroscopic effect. It's the same thing that kicks in when you're on a bicycle. It's a lot easier to balance on a bicycle when it's moving than when it's standing still. Uh, and that, yeah, so it comes from um, the angular momentum of the wheels turning or your ballet dancer turning. And the angular momentum is greater the faster you're turning. And so if you want to then topple the axis of that turn, you then have to create a torque that's strong enough to overcome that angular momentum. Whereas when they're not turning, there's there's no angular momentum to overcome. So it's quite easy to just flick a ballet dancer off a point shoe. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, when you're in the air, you've got more to deal with because when you're on the ground doing your turns, you can push off the ground and you can give yourself that extra angular momentum. You see them doing their fuetty turns in the Sugar Plum Fairy or Black Swan solos and whipping the leg round and pushing off with that releve each time. And then you get you can keep getting more angular momentum and try and keep all that in control. When you're in the air, you've got nothing to push against. It's really all in the launch. So the fouette turns, is that that's when they kick the leg out and that just keeps yeah. them going round, does it? Okay. Yes, yeah. is whipping. So all that whipping into a frenzy has to be impeccably controlled. And of course, if you're in the air, you haven't got the ground there to, to push against it, correct yourself if something's a little bit awry. So if you're doing turns in the air, then you really need to get yourself in order and you, you take off. 365-day returns. That leads us nicely onto Simone Biles. Um, so I looked, I watched her 
a legendary triple double before we uh, had right. this chat and it's just it's still that incredible does the oh. <laughs> <laughs> so go on um well like if people can't remember it just can you just explain first what 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 is the triple double yeah i mean to be honest even if you've seen it especially if you haven't seen it in slow motion you might still wonder what on earth was going on there there's an awful lot going on it's this extraordinary gymnastic leap where she turns you you need to turn twice through an axis going through the hips like a somersault or for the less athletic of us a roly poly yeah. and then <laughs> and then three times around the axis going from head to toes so the axis you turn in a pirouette so it's just a double black fit with triple pirouette at the same time oh, just, <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah so Simone Biles pulled this off the first woman to pull it off in a competition in the US championships in August 2019 and what was special about her that she managed to be the first woman to be able to do that? I think it was a lot of determination and a lot of practice. <laughs> I think it is a, a quiet character telling to pull off something like that. But there's a, it's obvious physicity. And it, when you come down to the training, obviously you get the muscles again. It's really, again, conservation of momentum. So you see her when she starts, she's gearing up for it. There's a massive, powerful run up. So that's giving her a load of momentum that she can then send airborne and give her the airtime to fit in all these twists and turns. And if you watch it in slow motion, that launch, it she looks like a, I think especially with all the, the blurring of the slow-mo frames, it looks like a jet of water. Every molecule of her body is perfectly aligned in a perfect projectile trajectory. Mm. There's not, you know, she's not wasting a jewel. It's very, very efficient launch <laughs> into the air. <laughs> That's what the coach said. Well done. You didn't waste a jewel there. <laughs> she landed. But, but how does she start the spinning once she's in the air though? Well, the spinning actually starts in the launch. So she's, when she's taking off, she's taking off into a sort of dive. So there is already angular momentum going around her hips but she's in this long stretched you know full of force and the angular momentum is not just uh, proportional to the speed of the spins but also the radius the distance from her extremity to the axis she's spinning around so she then tucks and that makes that radius shorter so you have to have the angular momentum conserved so the spins speed up to compensate so she can fit in more turns around that axis, around her hips. And then you see her arm whipping, a bit like you see um, the leg whipping around with those ballerinas doing their footy turns. And that sets off in motion the turns around the head-to-toe axis. And and this is, she's basically just got to then hold it all out <laughs> because there's not a lot you can do in the air to correct yourself when it's going wrong. You just want to hold your knees tight and your, your feet tight and... I think a lot of muscle memory um, just makes it all that magic come together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, couldn't resist. It just also all happens so quickly, right? It feels like when you see it in real time, it's yeah. like she kicks off and then before you've really realised what happens, she lands again. And yeah. all of that has happened. It's just amazing. It is. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And just the overcoming the impulse to just protect your head when you're spinning around <laughs> yeah. upside down. Because you've got to hold yourself all all neatly in, in aerodynamic and, you know, with your central masses and control and then of course the landing otherwise if she doesn't get that right it might be the last jump she ever does so at that point you don't want to squeeze your knees together and everything you need your knees and feet under your hips your knees going straight over your toes so it's all aligned and you want a really really deep plie to absorb all of that impact and she actually does a little bit of a hop back again on that well forgive that hop but it gives you a little bit more of a absorption of that massive massive momentum yeah 
But even then with the hot back, it's, it's just so, it feels like such a small reaction to what has just been yeah. an explosion know, of energy. And then she, like, so she smiles to the audience or holds her hand. Like it's just nothing. Yeah, like she's done that. You can't sit, you know, if I could even imagine jumping that high, let alone doing all of the rest of it, I feel like I would absolutely be puffing. I would be sweating yeah. all over. And she just a little wave and then carries on and does, <laughs> uh, you know, 15 more amazing moves. Yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary. But yeah, that's how it's done. I wouldn't try it at home necessarily. (laughs) Tim, what's your escapism this week? Uh, Go, which is a board game. Can you play Go, actually, Tim? Have you ever played it? I have tried. It's it's one of those that games that uh, it it seems really simple, but then a little bit like chess, you can sort of very quickly get a bit confused about what you're meant to be doing. So I've played against a computer, but I, though I've played probably dozens of games, I've never actually won one. <laughs> um, and so why is it in your escape pod this week? Okay, what I really like about Go is that it's a beautiful example of how something incredibly simple can become absurdly complicated very quickly. Go is played on a 19 by 19 board, um, just like a grid, and you place down stones according to a few very simple rules, and the aim of the game is to capture territory. But when you work out the number of possible ways that a game of Go can occur, there are more moves than there are atoms in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah which just really blows my mind and in fact it's not even close like you think it's one of those oh maybe it's just a few more moves the number of possible ways that um a game can occur is 10 to the power of 170 which is a one followed by 170 zeros yeah it's a daft number isn't it yeah it's, it's just you can't comprehend Silly. that number yeah. but the number of atoms in the universe is just 10 to the 80 so it's just not even close uh, that just really really blows my mind but so one of the one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in Go and that many people are is because of its link to artificial intelligence research. And the thing about Go, because it has so many moves, is there's no way that a computer can just solve it. There's no way for it to uh, a computer just work out all of the po- you know the best thing to do in any given situation because you just you couldn't store that information because you'd need all the atoms in the universe many 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 times over. Has that comforted you at all, the idea that it's not uh, something that you can crunch, solve mathematically? Yeah, I think so. I think like when, you, when you're a bit confused about the universe and all of the, you know, the, what makes um, life complicated, and then you look at something as simple as Go is extraordinarily complicated. I find some comfort in that, that even the simple things are so complicated. There's no <laughs> way I can possibly worry about all of the big complicated stuff because yeah. that's even more complicated. Just have a game of Go. <laughs> Relax. Okay, so Just have a game of Go. Always smile at a horse and even, <laughs> even the simple things are complicated. These are the things I'm taking so far. Okay, yeah, carry on, Tim. Okay, so one of the things that um, has got people particularly focused on Go recently is the fact that now the world's best Go player is an artificial intelligence called AlphaGo, um, which was developed by DeepMind, which is a a very famous London-based technology firm. And what makes it interesting is because you can't just solve Go, because you can't just work out the best thing to do in any given situation, AlphaGo had to learn to play instead by learning from hundreds of thousands of games through trial and error. And uh, at the end of all of this trial and error, even though it couldn't possibly know the best move in a situation, because that information just can't be hard coded into it, it could make a good guess. And some people think of this as it developing a sort of intuition. And I think that's I think that's really cool. Yeah, so it made that there was a famous move 37 it made that this is the one that people think was an intuitive 
creative work of genius by by AlphaGo, right? Yeah. So like this sort of intuition it developed was even though it learned from a lot of human games actually was not like human play at all. So in its famous matchup against Lisa Doll, who was a, a Go grandmaster, AlphaGo played a five match series against Lisa Doll and it, it won the first match and it sort of won the first match by just not really making any mistakes, you know, in a very sort of machine like way. But in the second game, this move 37 was a moment where it placed a stone whereby if a grandmaster did it, everyone would think the grandmaster had lost his mind or her mind because it was it went against, you know, thousands of years worth of studying Go that you should not put a stone on this particular square at this particular time. But then when they went back and looked at, at, where, at what point AlphaGo had won, it was the turning point. And so it, all of the pundits now consider it to be one of the most beautiful and creative bits of gameplay in Go, done by anyone, and yet it came from a, a machine. Unsaddled by humans' training and stuff, experiences. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is that um, in the first iteration of AlphaGo, it learned from human games, and then it also did lots of games against itself through trial and error. But then in later versions of AlphaGo, it decided to completely dispense with any human intuition because it seemed that actually that wasn't maybe the best thing. And it started right from the beginning, just playing against itself. And that is the version of AlphaGo we have at the moment. And that is way better than any of the preceding ones. So it's sort of, on the one hand, it's really exciting, but it's also a bit embarrassing that thousands of years worth of grandmaster play by humans that went into AlphaGo actually turned out to make it a worse Go player than if it just learnt by itself, machine on machine. You seem to be granting AIs this creative ability. I think most people will. So do you think eventually they're going to have, we'll get this artificial general intelligence, a human level intelligence in AIs? My feeling is that it's a, a long way off yet. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's really, yeah. <laughs> it's <not> our job. <laughs> but I think what I think what we will see soon, and we're already starting to see, is this sort of AI that can solve or provide some sort of solution for very, very complicated problems. And like Go is an example of that. It's just not a problem that people that, you know, that gives you any practical examples. But there there are so many situations where you have fairly simple rules that lead to something that's really complicated. Just when you look at, you know, at the building blocks of life, fundamental physics, the way atoms interact, or even the way um, weather occurs, all of that starts from very simple rules that suddenly become incredibly complicated with you know billions and billions and billions of possible outcomes and so if your ai can develop some sort of intuition involving some sort of creativity to provide solutions that humans couldn't have thought of themselves i think that would be really exciting i think that's a long way off a machine that is artificial general intelligence that is that can surpass humans on every task but on these sorts of tasks this could just it could completely change our understanding of a lot of parts of the universe at the moment. I think that would be amazing. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Anna. Uh, That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on the first mission of the Escape Pod. We'll be back next week. Uh, Do let us know what sort of things you'd like us to feature and we'll do our best to oblige. We're on Twitter, at NewScientistPod. And just before you go, there's a special offer. You can get a subscription to New Scientist for 12 weeks for half price at the moment. Uh, go to newscientist.com slash escape12 to get your special discount bargain. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.
This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.